This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. I love starting fresh with my reading life in January. It's always so much fun to come up with a long TBR list and set all sorts of literary goals. If you're planning your 2024 reading life, you won't want to miss Mercury, an utterly unforgettable audiobook from Amy Jo Burns that's perfect for fans of Tracy Lang. Read by Maria Liatis in this audiobook, a roofing family's bonds of loyalty are tested when they uncover a long hidden secret at the heart of their blue collar town. Start listening to Mercury by Amy Jo Burns now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and on this episode, I'm chatting with, uh, with author Issa Arsene about Shoot the Moon, which tells the story of a brilliant but lonely NASA secretary and her relentless drive to live a big life in a world that would keep her small. It's perfect for fans of Lessons in Chemistry with some time travel thrown in. Past guest of the podcast, Jenny Fields, author of Atomic Love, says part historical fiction, part science fiction, part moving love story. Issa Arsene's Shoot the Moon will surprise you at every turn. Prepare yourself. Shoot the Moon is a book like no other, and I definitely agree. Issa Arsene is a certified bleeding heart and audio engineer based in South Texas, where she lives with her spouse and a comically small dog. She's published several shorts and pieces of experimental interactive media. Inspired by her own childhood in New Mexico, Shoot the Moon is Arsene's debut novel. Issa, congratulations on Shoot the Moon. I was completely riveted by this story and had that feeling at the end where I'm just like bereft because the book is over and oh, I have to say goodbye to all these characters. <laughs> yes. so glad. Yeah. So thank you for being here. And I've, yeah, I've really been looking forward to diving more into the story. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, it is obviously very close to my heart. So um, I'm just happy to be here and I'm thrilled that it did hit you so deeply because that's that's my own litmus for when a book is like really really up there for me is like am I sad that it's done but happy that it happened (laughs) yes and I won't give anything away but some things happened that left me gutted and in tears (laughs) and um just yeah it was just the kind of book that you keep finding any spare minute to go sneak in a few more pages, which is always my favorite (laughs) kind. Um, Well, to back up a little bit, I would love for you to just tell us a little bit to start about um, this main character, Annie Fisk. And um, I feel like it's a difficult novel to summarize. So I will definitely let you do that. (laughs) Sure. Um, yeah, so it it centers around a woman called Annie Fisk. Um, It is told in three core pieces of her life. You get her childhood growing up in the 1940s in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Her father works on the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos. Um, And the second time period is her college years. She ends up in San Antonio, Texas at um, a college that is very, very, very heavily based on Incarnate Word, University of Incarnate Word, um, which (laughs) it was initially going to fully be Incarnate Word, but we realized it wasn't co-ed until the 70s. And it's a pretty important factor that the college is Mm -hmm. co-ed. So we just changed the name, but for all intents and purposes, all of the references to the campus and everything, it's Incarnate Word. Um, (laughs) And then her third period of life is her adulthood, um, where she lands a job as a secretary during the Apollo 11 launch in Houston. And from there, she ascends through the ranks of of employment. She gets a 
position on the programming team. Um, and that's where she really is able to dig her teeth in and make this discovery that just blows the roof off of everything that she thought was true about life and the universe and, and everything. Um, so she was a fun character to build. Um, I have my whole life, I've been raised in a family with very, very, very strong women. Um, it basically just the whole family is run by women. Um, and I have always been partial to uh, characters who chart their own course. And, you know, Annie is not a, I wouldn't call her a, an outwardly bold person. She is very reserved and she um, is not somebody who, who connects very easily with the outside world. Um, but she does have a lot of very intense ideas of, of what she wants for herself and, and is very driven by things that she doesn't really understand or care to pick apart. She, she doesn't kind of, she doesn't like to look in the dusty corners, um, but it was really fun to split this difference of like, yes, she is a very strong-headed person and she does have a very good idea of what she wants for herself and from the world, but she doesn't quite know how to ask for it. And, you know, she's coming of age in the in the 1960s. And that was a very, very crazy time to be a woman. Um, and there are a lot of parallels, I think, with with what we're experiencing today socially versus what was going on back then. So it was a really she was a really fun character to build. Um, and I, I'm really pleased to see so far, it seems that people are resonating with her and really enjoying her journey as much as I enjoyed writing it. Yes, I enjoyed her character so much. And I, I definitely like reading books where you're sort of seeing what it's like to be a woman ahead of your time. And um, that's why I think anyone who liked Lessons in Chemistry or is getting sucked into that TV <laughs> adaptation would really like this, you know, kind of a, a woman who um, is like a smart scientist who is, you know, faces roadblocks and like people not um, being quite ready for her yet. And then of course there's such a beautiful love story in it as well. And I was um, just so moved by um, a relationship in the book and won't give too much away, but <laughs> I just thought that that also that layer of it was just so beautifully done as well. And you know, it got me wondering because there are, it's such an interesting structure and things are woven together so well, but I'm curious if that took a while to come to, did it take some kind of playing around and kind of writing toward this structure? Or did you know at the outset that this is sort of what the book was going to be like? It's been disjointed and, and a chronological, we've been calling it since the beginning, um, but the order of things and the pace at which they happen is very different. And that was kind of my editor's mission from, from the beginning, Kate Dresser at, at Putnam. She was like, all right, you know, I know what you're trying to say with this story. <clears throat> Excuse me. I know where I think I would like to drive this book. So like, let's have a couple really long phone calls where we're like pacing back and forth on our own end. And just like, what if, what if spitballing, shuffling things around, playing Tetris. Um, like she had a note card of like the order of every scene um, in order and we would we would shuffle them and see maybe this works, maybe that works. Um, there's a scene that happens fairly early in the book now that that it, it's a it's a it's a pretty impactful scene that has to do with Annie's father uh, when she's kind of a teen she's like a mid teenager. 
Um, and that scene was initially very, very late in the book. That was, it was like in act three where I was, I was trying to breadcrumb it. So like, Ooh, you know, what is this element that's missing? But it, it left too many questions unanswered for too long. Um, so like we moved that one up and it started clicking a little bit better. And the, the, what I really wanted to achieve is this sense of, very extreme disjointment at the beginning where Annie very much doesn't know who she is and doesn't know what's driving her. And as the book deepens, more and more of the scenes start falling into chronological order as she sort of gets her shit together, for lack of a better term. Um, but it, it, the time will start churning more regularly as the book goes until the last few scenes are, are totally in order. Um, and that was something that I wanted to make very implicit and, and less explicit. Like I didn't want anybody to feel like I was holding their hand and pulling them through these timelines uh, any more than just a title card and, and kind of a voice change. Um, but I'm really pleased with, with where we were able to make it land. It, it, it wasn't difficult per se. It just took a lot more attention than I expected it to because I had all of these ideas locked in my head of, of what I wanted to say and how I wanted it to come across. Um, and that's the beauty of, of having an editor that really gets it. And my agent too, Chris, Chris Bucci at um, Evitas, he really knew what he was doing as well, where it's like, okay, like this is, it's fine to make this weird, but like, let's corral it a little bit. Um, and once we kind of got it rained, it was like, okay, cool. Now we can take this out. And, and then Kate was able to be like, yep, I'm going to take it across the finish line. So I, I could not have made it half so clear without the people that I had in my corner helping me with it. Um, yeah. That's so was, interesting though. That, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Even just thinking about, yeah, I could imagine a whole wall of the note cards of all the scenes and trying to really make the reading experience a certain way. And you do kind of feel like you're in like this whirlwind for a while at the beginning and you just like have to keep reading because you're trying to piece things together and um, you're sort of swept away. And then, yeah, it kind of becomes a little bit, um, you know, more straightforward by the end. So that's so interesting to hear how it's kind of constructed. And as you're saying, where they're kind of telling you like, we want it to be weird, but you know, it, it got me wondering like it's science fiction, but it's romance, but it's historical fiction. Were there <laughs> any um, hesitations at the beginning of like, well, we don't know exactly where we would like position this or like concern. I don't know. I just was curious about like when you're pitching it, did anyone try to more like pigeonhole you into one genre? Uh, when I was an agent process, when I was looking to get agented, when I was still querying, um, there were a couple conversations that I had with other people who weren't Chris, who were thinking like, oh, I would like this to be more of a romance, or I would like this to be more hard sci-fi. And they were talking about pulling out elements and, and focusing more on things. And, and the reason I, I signed with Chris to begin with, which was, you know, best decision ever, he's amazing. Um, he was able to look at it and say like, yep, I can digest this entirely as it is. I just want like more of her relationship with her family and like a little bit more awareness of who she is as a character. And then like, let's go take it on sub. Um, and again, another stroke of super luck, we landed with Kate who, who knows really what she's driving for is just a, a book that knows what it's saying. 
And she doesn't tend to have any hangups about genre conventions. Um, Cause I think we are moving in a direction where genre is getting really, really, really muddy in the edges of, and muddy, I, I guess muddy is the wrong word because that makes it sound bad. But um, I think we're, we're entering a phase of the creative zeitgeist that, that genre is, exists for us to manipulate it. And it, it, I think we're getting a lot more out of genre now at least from my perspective, in the ways that we bend it and we subvert it and we mash it all together. Um, and that's the most fun that I have with it. Like, yes, it is historical fiction. Yes, it is a little bit of science fiction. Yes, it is romance. It, it is all of these things at once. Um, and that is so much fun for me because I love, like, also obviously, you know, queerness in general. It's fun to not really play in the lines. It is you know, to just take things at face value and say, this is what I'm trying to say with this, like, hold my hand, you can come with me if you want to. Um, you know, I'm not really going to explain everything as we go, but you're, I can promise that you're going to have a good time with it. Um, so well, it it's just kind feels... of trusting, it's kind of trusting that readers can handle it on a lot of levels, mm-hmm. like they can handle a complicated structure and they can, yeah. you know, most, well, I shouldn't say most, but I feel like a lot of readers read in lots of different genres. So things, you know, I'm sure it makes it more convenient sometimes for, you know, a bookstore or a publicist to like pitch things a certain way, but like trusting that readers can, you know, can handle a mishmash and and enjoy a mishmash. At least I do. Um, And it very much is too, like, I have always abided by the adage of write what you want to be reading. And I love stuff that, you know, kind of paints outside the lines and doesn't really play by the rules. Um, I love weird fiction. I love experimental stuff. Um, I love classics and tradition, which I think is why I have so much fun with these middle spaces is because I get to speak to all of the things that I love. Like, you know, I, I love, I grew up grew up rather came of age probably is the better term for it but like reading pulp and like highsmith and renault and all of that like from the 50s 40s and 50s and 60s and taking the conventions of like how those authors spoke to desire and the ways that all of that was framed and formatted and had to be presented back then because you couldn't be overt about it because of censorship and all of that which now we don't necessarily have to play within those lines, hopefully, like <laughs> I hope that the tide of censorship stops. Um, but looking at that and seeing like, there were still stories throughout our time that have been written that speak to very deep and very intense functions of passion and and um, want. And I think really that's that's what my stories all of them speak to regardless of genre, regardless of pitch or tone or anything like that. Um, It's all about people wanting things and really reaching toward those things, even if they don't really know what they want. There is a sense of desire and ache and yearn. And, you know, I, I don't know if that's just because of who I am as a person or because of the media that I like to consume on my own. And, and that just comes out through the way that I process it creatively. Um, but it is, I think, like, if, if you think of it from the character's perspective first, genre doesn't really matter at the end of the day. It's really what what's serving the story that you're trying to tell. And if some genre conventions match, like, use them. And if some of them don't, leave them aside. Um, and I think that's a really cool thing that I'm starting to see authors do is 
pick and choose and make something totally new with, with what we've been raised on, really. I think that's such good advice, you know, really thinking about the character first. And in this case, oh, yeah. it's true. I feel like her yearnings and um, desires really help propel you through the story and we become so invested in them as well. And um, yeah, just starting with that really fascinating character that's going to make people keep grabbing the book um, again and again. Well, you know, I wanted to ask too, I, I read somewhere that the story had some inspiration in your own childhood. And so I was hoping to hear a little bit about that. Any pieces that sort of came from life or, or settings that came from life? Um, New Mexico is the most beautiful place in the United States, in my humble opinion. Um, it is an incredible place. Um, it's desert, it's mountains, it's every slice of the West at once. Um, and my mom's entire side of the family is from there. They all emigrated in the 1930s from Italy and set up shop in Albuquerque and didn't leave. <laughs> um, so I would spend summers out there when I was a kid at my grandparents' house and um, they had a garden in the back. My grandfather was a really, really green thumb gardener. Um, and they had a big garden wall. It was a walled in house. It was, you know, I think it was built in probably the late sixties, early seventies. So the house itself is a bit of a hodgepodge of a bunch of different houses that I just have swimming around in my memory, um, any childhood houses. But then when, God, how many years ago was this now? A couple years ago it was it was post pandemic but i think i had had the tapes for a long time like sitting in a box <laughs> my husband was like do something with these please they're taking up a lot of space uh we had a bunch of family camcorder footage from decades and decades just sitting in a box and they were in my grandmother's closet when we cleaned up the house after she passed and um there were a bunch of eight millimeter film reels that we didn't have any machine on which to view them, but I got all of the tapes digitized at once and the eight millimeter film came back and there was footage of my mother's grandparents' house. So it was my great grandparents uh, still in Albuquerque. And my great grandfather had these huge rose bushes, these massive pink, just like cumulus clouds stuck to every inch of the house on the front, on the back, on the sides. They were everywhere and he tended them. And like my mom would always joke that like, oh, you know, my nano cared about the roses more than anybody else in the family. Um, but the visual of these huge billowing rose bushes in the middle of the desert um, was just so vivid to me. And then the idea of those roses coming back as a motif element of not only Annie's childhood, but she goes back to the home when she's kind of in her young adulthood, when she's in college. And then again, being able to see them from a, from a, even a different perspective as an adult adult, um, that refrain of a house in New Mexico with the roses stuck with me. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do something with it for a while. And it wasn't until I sat down and, and really started getting the first seeds of this book that I was like, okay, visually that works, tonally that works, setting wise, timeline wise, like all of this works, I have to do something with this. Um, and it worked. I I don't want to give anything away. So it's hard. <laughs> but I really want to know there was, there's something toward the end that felt like a very big surprise to me, but then I'm like, oh, of course, 
And if anyone's already read it, I feel like they'll understand what I'm saying. So I'm still going to ask. And I'm just curious if you knew at the start kind of about that surprise. And oh, that, yeah. like, that was uh-huh. the first, that was the seed of the book. Oh, <laughs> it was so me thinking it, I, to myself, like, what am I trying to say with this book? Okay. It's about being able to, and I'm trying to say this delicately too, without spoiling anything. It's like, I want to tell a story about reaching back into one's own self and offering some kind of assurance. Um, And that to me, I think it's, it's a fantasy, but it's also very doable. Um, And it's kind of this bridge that you walk of like, you know, I can't do this literally in real life, but in fiction, like how, how would I offer some comfort to, you know, this smaller version of myself that I want to be able to tell things will be okay. Like that's, that was basically the crux of it is, you know, we all have tiny selves and it's our duty to take care of them throughout the rest of our lives. But like, you know, what if, what if there was one way to take it a step further? Yeah. Well, I have to say it, it made complete sense to me when I read it, but I had not seen it coming at all. Oh, I'm so glad. Completely (laughs) shocked. That it comes out of left field. That makes me really happy. Completely. Again, I've known it since the beginning. So I was sort of (laughs) just flying blind the whole time. Like, well, hope this works. (laughs) Well, and then I was like, how did I not ever think of that? (laughs) Like, especially as like some of the like, science comes along and yeah. yeah I was completely shocked but then went oh my god that makes so much sense and um yeah it was just so good and I feel like you know I felt like I could relate and I'm sure other people can relate there is sort of this like um kind of like mystical feel to places that have been a part of your life or your family's life for years and years. And I feel like sometimes you can walk around a place like that and like feel the presence of the past so strongly. So yeah. And that New Mexico is that in spades because, you know, there's New Mexico still has a huge um, indigenous population too. So it's been populated by Americans for thousands of years, which is not true of many places in the country or true of, of places all across the country, but like to have the active history of truly being able to look at a place and say like people have been here contiguously for thousands of years, quite literally. Um, it really is just soaked with history and, and really it feels like a place that has old bones. Um, yeah. And there's so much history. There's so much life there um and it's just a really incredible place that that does kind of feel like it sits on the veil um it's a really really magical spot i've never been so i'm gonna have to add it to my travel you should everybody should see new mexico at least once in their life it is a stunning place um well you know i was curious to hear especially given I kept thinking of so many different books that would like sit with shoot the moon on the shelf. And it kind of got me wondering about your reading life and if there are any books that you've read lately that you'd want to recommend. And I'm curious if they're, you know, similar or very different from this novel. Yeah. um, I think it's a little bit of everything. (laughs) Um, 
I recently, I'm trying to kind of drum up, I'm looking at my Kindle list here. Um, I cried my eyes out through almost the entirety of Tin Man by Sarah Women. Um, it's short. I think it's technically a novella classed. It, it, it says it's a novel, but I think it's a novella. But oh my goodness, I think I did that one in like two afternoons and it destroyed me in the best way. Ooh. It's like a, it's an interpersonal Destroyed drama. me in the best way is kind of my jam. So I'm yeah. Oh, to... <laughs> I, run, don't walk to Tin Man. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It like, if you've ever seen the movie God's Own Country, it kind of has the same tone to it where it's like pretty quiet, very meditative, very much about like looking back. Oh, it's so good. Um, I've been reading a lot of Westerns because I am in the middle of drafting one. Um, I absolutely loved Olympus, Texas by Stacey Swan. She's another Texas author. Um, it's a retelling of, or not a retelling, but it's a reframing of uh, Greek mythology through a family in East Texas. And it like, they're messy, they're, like just like the gods, uh, they are messy and in, like everything is just, they have all of these really nasty knots between them um, and the way that they're all personified, like Artemis, her name is Artie and she does, she's like a land steward and a hunter um, and her twin brother is a musician, like wandering. It's, oh, it's so good. It's very Texas. It is, her sense of prose is incredible. I love it. Um, what else? Uh, all Night Pharmacy by Ruth Medievsky is great um it's like totally different like not a historical very much a contemporary book um but it's about a woman who struggles with a really intense relationship with her sister and drug addiction um and like running from herself into these really toxic relationships with other people it's the main character's voice is really fun and snappy um and i'm in the middle right now of valentine by elizabeth wetmore which i'm loving it's another Texas book uh, set in the 70s um, and it's about a town that I think it's either in Odessa or just outside of Odessa I can't recall um, but they get totally thrown for a loop um, after a young girl is murdered and assault assaulted and murdered by a man on an oil field um, and I'm not quite done with that one yet but oh it's good <laughs> Ooh, so a, li like a little bit of everything I, I go through seasons with my reading um, I, The Charioteer by Mary Renault also that like I read that one every time I'm traveling and I was just on tour for Shoot the Moon so I like have all my favorite scenes bookmarked the oh, the wedding the wedding scene with that whole thing and just if anybody else has read it it's you know it's so good <laughs> I will have to link to all of those and, and add a lot of them to my reading list for sure. And one of the last things, well, I guess twofold. So one, whenever I read a book and I'm like thinking the whole time, oh, I would love to watch this. I'm always eager to ask the author for the inside scoop if there has been any kind of optioning yet for TV or movies. So I was curious if there is for this one. We have started discussions. Uh, and oh, I exciting. think, yeah, things move slowly. Um, particularly with Hollywood doing all of the renegotiating that it has to be doing right now, like WGA Strong, Stand with SAG-AFTRA, all that fun stuff. Um, but yeah, we're talking, so we'll see. Well, that is exciting. And then I was just curious, I think you said you're drafting a Western. Is that the next book? What What is next um, that we so can the next see? Officially, the next book is, uh, it's another mid-century book. It's a drama. Um, it's called The Unbecoming of Margaret Wolfe. 
I'm uh, that's also with Putnam and and my editor Kate. Um, we I've just finished development edits for that or developmental edits, so we're we're moving into line edits. That one should be coming out, I believe, January 2025 is targeted release for that one. Um, and yeah, the the Western is unattached right now. It's still very much a draft, but that one should be fun. I'm kind of mixing together all of my favorites from True Grit and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So we'll see where that one goes. Exciting. We'll definitely look out for those. And I, I had to think to myself, oh, January, January 2025, that's so long to wait. But I guess really it's only a year now. So Yeah, exactly. Bad. I know. Time is flying. We're like almost halfway through November. What is this? It's so. crazy. Um <laughs> Well, Isa, thank you so much for being here. And I really hope that listeners go pick up a copy of Shoot the Moon or um, go hurry over to their local library. And um, I'm definitely going to look forward to reading what comes next and crossing my fingers that I get to see this on the screen sometime soon. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me, Laura. I had a great time. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review it every Get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.